0: All right, let's go. First Corinthians chapter one. First Corinthians chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screen behind me in just a little bit. Uh, If you're watching us online right now, we'll put the text up on your screen when we get to that moment. we also have, um, if you if you don't own a Bible of your very own, don't have one that you can call yours and you know just be your Bible, um, we have a bunch around here that we actually love giving away. Um, we believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things. Chief among those important things is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. Uh, we want you to know God. We want your life to be uh, defined by Him, shaped by Him, led by Him, all of those things. And if the Word, His Scriptures are what He uses to do that in you, accomplish that in you and through you, um, it's just a smart move on our part to be finding ways to get people reading their Bible. And so if you don't have a Bible of your own, let me know either in the comment section or in person here, and uh, we'll be happy to... um to fix that pretty quick. Um, so we're kicking off a brand new thing this morning. I already mentioned that. Uh, we spent the last several months uh, uh, really kind of pressing as deeply as we could into the Old Testament. I don't know if you've noticed that. Uh, from about the beginning of summer on, uh, we walked through the book of Habakkuk together. Uh, we spent all this last month um, pressing really deep, hard and fast, into the book of Psalms. Uh, even our, our Bible reading plan that we have through the Version Bible app, even those two plans. Uh, last month was through Proverbs. This month now is through the historical books or just a quick survey through the historical books of the Bible. And so we've been kind of hammering on uh, Old Testament a lot, and and I think that's to our benefit. I think God has used that, but we're going to hit the go button on our next major series by returning to the New Testament again. Uh, We're going to take a slow walk through the the letter uh, that we call 1 Corinthians, right? 1 Corinthians. Um, And I'll just be honest with you, it's going to end up being a long one. Like, like a long one. Um, as the crow flies, I'm mapping out like 30 plus weeks of this. Uh, when you uh, add in, you know, taking a break for Advent and for Easter and maybe a summer series here and there. We're talking about a year plus. Uh, and so uh, Corinthians is going to end up feeling like home to us. Uh, it's going to end up feeling like the place we come back to and just kind of rest in forever. And, uh, and, and personally, I, I kind of think that's a good thing. I kind of think it's a really good place to spend a lot of time. While our church is considerably healthier uh, than the church in Corinth, like it's not even close. They're, they're a train wreck, Right? right? They're an absolute, absolute problem. There's, they're just a hot mess, all right? Uh, there's infighting. Uh, there's there's factions everywhere. They're not only walking in sin, but openly dis- dismissing their, that sin and, and, and calling it a good thing, all right? And so the Corinthian church was a Big old mess, all right? Uh They're an absolute train wreck, and, and and that's not us, not even close. God has blessed us here, All right. There's a lot that we can point to that that's that's not as great as it needs to be, but there's a whole lot more that we can point to that says, yeah, God did that, and God did that, and look what He's brought us through here, here, and here, all right? And so uh, we don't look like the church at Corinth at all, and so we're we're not at all in the same place as that Corinth was. But the reality, men, the reality, is that I think. But the shift to get there is actually way more subtle and easy to fall into than we think. While we're not Corinth, not in any way, shape, or form, we can end up being like Corinth way quicker than we expect. The pathway from healthy and thriving to hot mess is actually a shorter walk than we think it is, especially if the wrong things get changed. When I was growing up, I did the Boy Scout thing, and they taught us how to use an orienteering compass. That's what this guy is here. Maybe you've seen one before, maybe you haven't. Um, It's a compass, but it's got this little spinny part, and that way uh, they taught us to, to, when we were trying to figure out where to go, and we would check our bearing, and we would dial in our reading on the map, and, and we would set out that direction, Right. And this is an incredible little tool. It's so simple. It's got a little magnifying glass on there. And as a 12-year-old boy, I thought it was something awesome. Right? Um, and so they, they taught us how to, how to use one of these things. Um, but it wasn't enough just to get our measurement. It wasn't enough just to get our bearing and set out. They taught us to recheck before we set out. And then to recheck again a little bit of ways into the journey and to recheck again a little bit after that and again a little bit after that and again and again and again and again it wasn't just that we were taught how to use a compass it was drilled into us early and often that that we needed to make sure that we're headed on the right bearing being off by one degree, it doesn't really matter much when you're walking from one end of the field to the next. It doesn't change much in, in your your final destination. But when you got to travel fifteen to twenty miles, being off that one degree, it affects your target by miles. Right. And so we weren't just taught to use the compass, we were taught to reuse the compass and to keep coming back to the compass and to continue to, to retake our bearing and to continue to, to reassess and make sure that we were actually headed the way that we knew we ought to be headed. Too much was on the line to merely assume. It was a matter of safety. It was a matter of efficiency. We didn't have time to, to just act like we got it. We needed to be sure, and the same is true, I think, with the church. We've got a calling as as God's people. We a clear ob- objective as to uh, to what the local gathering, local community of Jesus followers, is to uh, it's is to look like. What we ought to look like. What we ought to be defined by. What we ought to be doing. And being off by one degree, it may not seem like a big deal on a weekend. In like fact, nobody might even people might not even notice. But if you get off by a degree over generations, it can land you in a pretty not-so-good spot. So even though God has protected us so far from looking like Corinth, (laughs) that's painfully obvious here. Even though he's protected us so far from looking like Corinth, I think that a slow walk through this letter could actually serve as an intentional moment of stopping to check our bearings could be an on-purpose moment to dial in our compass ever so slightly and make absolutely certain that we're headed where we're supposed to be headed. Sound good to you? Sounds good to me. All right, so what is this bearing that we need to dial in? What's this bearing that's so important? Well, I think it can actually be picked up in the very first few verses of the letter. Um, If you're familiar with Paul's other letters, he seems to like to tip his hand as to what he's going to be talking about later on the letter, even in his greeting. So even just as he's saying hi, we can get some clues as to where he's actually going to go. Um, And so starting in verse 1, we'll read the whole three verses that we're going to look at today. It says this, Paul, I know it feels like there's a bunch of repeated stuff in there, and that's because there's a whole bunch of repeated stuff in there. Like, he seems incredibly redundant, right? You think he does that on purpose? The answer is yes. Yeah, he, he does that on purpose. He's intentionally redundant. Even as he says hi, he wants to hammer some things in here, right? When you repeat yourself, it's something that you want to emphasize, right? And so Paul, even before he gets out of the initial introduction, he's already attacking some things that I think are important for us to see. And so look back at verse 1. It says, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. So he starts out pretty simply enough, right? He says it's from Paul, right? This letter is from Paul. Now, there are some who want to argue, some of Paul's letters, that, that some scholars want to try to kind of be hypercritical about and pick apart and, and try to argue that don't actually belong to the Apostle Paul. And so there's, there's some room, at least a little bit, for some healthy debate on some of those things, but this ain't one of those letters. This one is Paul's. This, it's clearly Paul's letter. But, but it's not just some random guy named Paul. Maybe you don't know who he is. All right, we're told that he's an apostle. An apostle, which is a word that we don't really use much in our culture anymore, or or if we do see it in our culture, it's usually used in a not so great situation, right? Right. And we don't typically use the word apostle anymore. So, so what's an apostle? Well, in in the most generic sense possible, it's someone who is sent with a message, sent with news, a messenger. In fact, that's that's literally what the word means, a messenger. But at the same time, it's, it's also a lot more than just a messenger. It, it is a messenger, but it's more than a messenger. Uh, it, it, uh, an apostle, they carried authority. They, they spoke for the one who sent them and so and so yes they carried news but they're also more like an ambassador of sorts right and so they they represent they don't just they're not just the person carrying the letter from A to B they're the person carrying the message and if the message needs to be uh, spoken here or spoken there or defined here and defined there or or refined in all these places they are they are the ones to do it they have the authority to speak for the one who sent them and so and so what happened what happened in the early church was uh, that they they took this word apostle this generic word apostle and they used it began to use it to, to describe the role of someone who had been specifically designated by God to carry his message with authority that he wasn't just a messenger no they were an authoritative messenger and not everybody got that title. Now, all of God's people are called to carry the message of the gospel. All of God's people have been commissioned to to be disciple makers and to be evangelists and all these things. We've been called, all of us, every one of us have been called to speak the message of the gospel. But our authority, it comes from God's word. We don't carry authority in and of ourselves. Our message is the self-authoritative scriptures. But there were some, there are some, were some, that Jesus did give the title of apostle to. He did give that kind of authority. Those people had been eyewitnesses uh, to the resurrected Jesus, and they had specifically been instructed by Jesus as to what the gospel was so the apostles, man, they were a small number, and I, and I mean a small number, when you, when you consider the whole, they were a small number of, of people who were isolated to the first century church, specifically set apart to speak authoritatively on behalf of God. And, and that's why their letters became scripture. God carried them along, and, and their preserved words are as authoritative as God's words because they are God's words. As a pastor and a preacher, my words are authoritative only in so far as I am rightly reading and explaining God's authoritative word. The second I, I veer from that, I'm not authoritative anymore. The scriptures are the authority for us, but they, they, they spoke the scriptures because of the authority granted to them. And this means that there's no more apostles today. Period. There are no more apostles today. Now, there may be a number of people who claim that title for themselves, but I would politely argue that either A, they aren't using the word correctly and they're claiming the messenger part without the authority part and thereby confusing a lot of folks, or B, they are claiming the authority part and we have a very big problem on our hands, right? Which leads us to the qualifier that Paul mentions here about his apostleship. He calls himself called by the will of God to be an apostle. This is no self-proclaimed title. Paul didn't just dream this up one day, and neither is it some some kind of achievement that Paul positioned himself to to unlock. He didn't study in the right way, and he didn't go through the the right hoops uh, and raise himself up the ladder in a a specific way and in a specific fashion. This is no self-proclaimed title, and it's not something he achieved. No, he carries this authority for no other reason but because Jesus stopped him one day on his way to Damascus and said, no, 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 you're on my team now. I know you were going over here to do this, but I'm going to send you over there to do that. Change your jersey, you're on a different team. Let's do this instead. Paul doesn't carry the title of apostle because he's the most educated guy in the room. He doesn't carry the title of apostle because he's the most charismatic guy. He doesn't carry the title because he was the one who aspired to leadership more than everybody else. Now, some of those things are actually true about Paul. He was incredibly educated. He was, it seems, a pretty good leader. Charisma doesn't have any of that. But he got two out of three, right? That's pretty good. Paul is no slouch. If this were uh, who's higher on the ladder game, Paul would win. He would. Paul was an incredibly successful man. But he also makes it explicitly clear here that those are not the reasons that he's an apostle. Doesn't matter what his education was. Doesn't matter how good a leader he was. Doesn't matter if he does this, 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 or this. That's not the reason he's an apostle. It's because God said, This is what I want you to do. And now Paul is walking in obedience to his king. Jesus gave him authority, and now he's walking in it. And this is a consistent theme that I think we're going to see. All throughout this letter of First Corinthians. Paul Paul man he's not impressed with those who are trying to jockey for position. Not a bit. He's he's watching it all play out. He's like, what are you doing? What are you spending your energy on? That. That's not how things work. Corinth, man, it's, I think we're going to discover that it, it seems to be a city that prided itself on, on people out-hustling and, and out-maneuvering one another in order to get ahead. And, and over and over and over again, Paul seems to want to completely shred that worldview. Just tear it apart. And so even as... The very first words are beginning to flow from his pen. He's, he's making it abundantly clear that his authority, it it doesn't come from some self-gained expertise. And nor does it come from, you know, whoever you or I might want our leader to be. It's not dependent on on who who we want to chase or who they want to chase or whoever wants to chase. That's not where his leadership comes from. It is a God-given authority, and now it's time for all man-made authorities, wannabe authorities, to hush and listen. That's his tone here. I know you think you have authority because of this, and I know you think you have authority because of that. No, I'm an apostle by the will of God. Hush, I'm talking. (laughs) Trust me. I know exactly how blasphemous that sounds to our pluralistic 21st century Western culture. Right? Doesn't just make your insides turn out. You really say something like that. In fact, I spent a good bit of time this week thinking through whether or not I should bring it up. Here's the deal, though. Regardless of however it sounds in our you know, to our cultural sensibilities, I think it would have rang just as blasphemous two thousand years ago in Corinth, Greece. I think I think that's exactly why Paul says it. I think that's why he asserts his authority here. We like to think, we really do. We like to think in the West that that all the things that we chase after and pursue in this world were we came up with. That that we're the first people to discover this and first people to discover that and problem with that, though, is we just don't know our history very well. There's nothing new under the sun. Not a bit. Another reason why 1 Corinthians is such a valuable letter for, for us to walk through is, is because their world didn't really look all that different from ours. It really doesn't. I mean, sure, technology has grown at warp speed. I mean, (laughs) I've got an iPad and a watch and a phone and a computer in my office that are all giving me the same notification every five minutes, right? And so, like, technology has grown at an incredibly rapid pace, but the values and the prizes that we chase after, the world's seen it before. This ain't a new game. And thanks be to God, man, the Apostle Paul, he just doesn't pull punches. He's going to go right after their idols in this letter, which which means he's going to go right after ours, too. If our culture looks like theirs, and he's going to attack their idols, it means he's going to attack ours as well. When Paul's writing this letter it's to a church he knows and loves dearly uh paul helped to start the church at corinth um we're told that that he's he's he was there at the beginning he was there for about a year and a half we believe before he moved on from there uh to go plant churches start churches in other places he he, we think he goes from there to uh ephesus and he spends about three years in ephesus and it's at the end of his time in ephesus that three-year period that we think that he writes this letter that's when we think first corinthians rolls out um so it's, it's a letter to people he knows he's been gone like three years yeah there's been some turnover in the church like any other church would have our church looks different than it today than it did three years ago but there's a lot that's the same right there's a lot of familiar faces around here and so this is a letter to, to people he knows inside and out a people he evangelized a people he worshipped alongside of a people he ate a ton of meals with these are not strangers he's writing to Not only that, but we're going to learn in chapter 5 of this letter that this is not the first letter he sent them. It's at least the second letter. Because he's going to refer back to another letter he's already written. In chapter 7, we're going to learn that he, they had written a letter to him asking him a bunch of questions about uh, some, some functional things and some theological things in the life of the church. And he's going to answer some of those questions uh, specifically in verbatim. All right? And so uh, there, there's some back and forth here. This is not his first interaction. He, he, he was there at the beginning, and there's a bunch of interactions in the time period in between. And so Paul knows this group inside and out. He knows what their junk is. He knows their idol. He He knows exactly what they struggle with. And like a surgeon, man, he's going to go for the tumor. He's going to go right after it. We've only covered Paul calling himself an apostle so far, so look at verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth... To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord. Uh, Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Alright, let's back up a little bit. To the church of God that is in Corinth. So let's call time out there. Uh, um, A few months ago, uh, in fact, the very first week that we were back here in person, uh, the very first week that we we met with people in the room again, uh, we spent time on that day talking about this specific word church here, right? It's the Greek word ekklesia, and it it means a gathering, right? Uh, A purposeful gathering. Not just some random crowd of people, but a a purposeful, intentional gathering. Literally, it means a call out group. And so it's not just some collection of folks, it's a group with a mission. A mission. And we said back in June that there's an assumption carried all the way throughout the New Testament. It's uh, that the church is by definition a gathered missional people. That online things are a wonderful tool that can be used in extraordinary circumstances. God can use that for His glory, but there's something God-ordained and special about His people gathering in one space to worship and proclaim the Word. It just hits different. they got to set this moment apart as something that actually affects eternal realities. Well, there are several... Legitimate reasons to to be separated from the body for a time. The the truth is that that once those legitimate reasons go away, we're actually talking about disobedience. And So there's this New Testament-wide assumption, from from front to back, a New Testament-wide assumption that God's people have a corporate identity and not merely individual ones. A corporate identity. And so we need to see here, as we walk through this letter, we need to see that, that 1 Corinthians, that Paul is not addressing individuals merely as individuals. He's speaking to this special thing called the church. It's made up of individuals, for sure. Individual attitudes and actions affect all kinds of things. They affect everything, even. But there's a corporate identity in play here, an identity that that exists for a dedicated purpose, to bear Jesus' name and represent him to a lost world. That identity exists for a reason, and by nature By nature, that purpose is always going to stand in stark contrast to the celebrated purposes that God's people find themselves in. Always. If you faithfully represent an otherworldly king in his kingdom, the world you're actually living in is going to think you're kind of backwards. It's literally going to be foreign to them. Who knows, if you were the creative type, you might even call it upside down. but I want to spend our time this series trying to prove to you that it's not merely upside down. It's beautifully upside down. And I get it. It may not seem like it at first, or at least when we first see it. It In fact, it might immediately strike us as awkward and unwise. But church family, like he always does, I think God will show himself to be better. I think he will show himself to be good. I think he will show himself to be sweeter. I think he will show himself to be truer than anything this world can offer up. Do you trust that? And so Paul writes to this gathering of God's people and he says, reading the rest of verse two, to the church of Corinth, that is, uh, to the church of God that is in Corinth, comma, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So, we live in a world where Catholic roots run really deep. I don't know if you've noticed that, um, and so we have to be on purpose in moments like these in order to, I think consistently undo bad teaching. Um, so if, if you've been here for a while, this won't be new to you, but uh, in case you are new, uh, saints are not, hear me clearly, saints are not a venerated class of Christians who have special merit to share with others. Not even a little bit. They, they don't have anything to share. They needed grace. They don't have grace to spare. When the Bible uses the word saints, like when the Bible, forget about church structures when when the bible uses the word saints it's talking about normal christians me if you're a christian you the word saint and sanctified here they have the same root in english because they have the same root in greek hagia All right? it means holy or set apart or set apart for a special purpose it's like it's like taking that that piece of cake out of the the rest of the whole and setting it aside for someone special it's been set apart for this glorious beautiful thing it it has a purpose to it saint is the adjective form meaning a holy one sanctified is the verb form meaning speaking to the, it speaks to the process of becoming holy that that's what's going on there and so in the bible you become holy by trusting in jesus's saving work on the cross and having his holiness gifted to you that's how you become holy in the bible therefore christians if you are a follower of jesus christians are a holy people called out people or the shorter word saints And Paul here, he doubles down. He repeats himself in order to hammer the truth home. The church at Corinth is a gathering, a collection, a missional group of called out ones. Of called out ones. The church exists for a purpose. For the purpose of being a unique And special thing in the culture it's surrounded by. Holy things stand out as holy. They can't help it. It's obvious to everyone. And all churches, whether we're talking about Corinth or Nashua Baptist or any other church you want to point to, all churches carry this responsibility to be the holy, called-out ones in the midst of the rest of their culture. And so we're going to learn throughout this letter that many of the people in Corinth, they wanted to run the opposite direction. Instead of being the hold-out, unique, set-apart, missional, uh, special ones, they wanted to run as closely as possible into the look-like-everybody-else category rather than Walking in a holy uniqueness, they instead celebrated how much they look like the rest of their culture. But they found satisfaction and accomplishment in being able to say that, that they look like this and that they look like this. And being able to say certain things about themselves. But whether they wanted to celebrate it or not, that's not what they were called to. It's not why God set them apart. It's not the purpose for which He created them. I've had my own share of fundamentalist church experiences over the years. Maybe you have too. Those environments, man, they always breed an air of self righteousness. Self righteousness, and, and and the reason for that is because they fail to understand grace. Uh, whenever you fail to under uh, to understand grace, it's it's always going. to to leave you with a false impression that you've accomplished something important, accomplished something special. and You you don't need God in that moment because you got it handled, right? That's what's going on there. Don't don't worry, God. I know you're busy and all. I I know you offer, but I'm good. I got it. You can't help but but grow self-righteous in that moment. And, And without fail, in that environment, without fail, it will never be long before people begin to pridefully believe that they're the ones who got it figured out. And everybody else, everybody else, they're the ones who are responsible for turning this place into bedlam. Right? That's how the things will always roll out, but it's a really anti-gospel kind of moment. Hurts a lot of people. But the reality, though, is that you can just as easily swing the pendulum all the way the other direction and get it just as wrong. I've also experienced my share of progressive church moments. Maybe you have too. And those environments also breed an air of self-righteousness. And they do so because they fail to understand grace. When you fail to understand grace, you're always going to be left with a false impression that you accomplished something special, that you accomplished something important. And in that environment, it will never take long before people pridefully get the impression that they've got it figured out and and everybody else is missing the point. Everybody else is holding this place back from where it needs to get to. They'd only be as sophisticated and and refined is me, then we finally make something of ourselves here. Hear me clearly. The problem with the church at Corinth was not their licentiousness. Now, it's an issue. It's an issue that we're going to come to over and over and over and over and over again throughout this letter. Uh, their, their, their problem fleshed itself out in licentiousness, and Paul's got to address it. It's certainly an issue that we're going to spend a lot of time on, but their terrible sin was merely a symptom of a larger and, I think, much more devastating problem. They forgot what kingdom they belonged to. They forgot the king. They followed. They forgot that it was the king who put them in that kingdom. And they forgot what their king actually called them to do and to be. So, Paul reminds this church, a church he loves dearly and wants to see walk deeply with the Lord, he reminds them that, that they exist to be an outpost standing together with all the other outposts for the sake of representing the king who saved them to a world that doesn't know him yet. That's their purpose. Regardless of whatever else they might want to chase uh, after or or think is best to chase after, they have been set apart for a purpose that is not their own, a glorious and otherworldly mission to be sanctified disciple-makers where their king has chosen to place them. There's no doubt about it. This is going to feel upside down to us. It really will. It felt upside down to Corinth all those years ago. It's going to be a head-on collision for us. The question to be answered, though, is, is it beautiful? Regardless of how it might initially impress upon us, Is it beautiful? Is it good? Is it true? Does it have eternal value in an otherwise fading world? Because if if it does, who cares if it seems upside down? Who cares what it might cost us on the front end? I think this letter from Paul is as timely as any letter can be. No, we don't, we don't have the same issues as Corinth, but man, it could help us. It could help us a ton. And so he closes out his initial greeting in verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A scalpel has to do damage in order to fix the problem. It has to. Forget about whatever you saw on the the medical drama on TV. Right? That, that's not real world. A scalpel has to do damage. Cutting out a tumor is a violent act, but it is a necessary act. It is a loving act. There are going to be some painful things in this letter, no doubt. Some of us are going to feel the weight of some of them. Some of us are going to feel the weight of others. Some of us are going to feel the weight of all of them. There are going to be some painful things in this letter. But Paul's tone here, it's not anger. He's got some harsh words for them. His tone here is love and concern. He wants good for them. And and that's another otherworldly upside down reality that we're going to have to to pay attention to throughout this letter we we live in a world that desperately wants to believe that love never has a harsh word That love gets out of your way and makes you uh, allows you to do this or allows you to do that because you want freedom right but the bible's definition of love is a love that's sacrificial It's a love that engages, it it empties itself and jumps in front of danger at the place, uh, it places itself at risk in order to protect the beloved. That's the Bible's definition of love. Love doesn't ignore and hope for the best, it engages and pursues. Even at great cost to itself. So Paul not only speaks with an apostolic authority here, he also speaks with a loving appeal a concerned pleading, a love that wants so much more for the church in Corinth than what they even see and want for themselves. It is upside down to those who have bought into what the world is selling, no doubt. But Paul is committed to showing them its otherworldly beauty. It's otherworldly value. It's otherworldly promise. So what do we do with this, right? How do, how do we respond to, to God's word in, in just an initial greeting of a letter, right? Like, like, what do we do with this? There's no commands in here. Follow Jesus, our response is the same as it is every week. We We repent of sin and we press into his goodness. Maybe this week it, it looks like being on purpose to ask critical questions of of our own values and and priorities, the prizes we chase after, to ask honest questions about our worldview, see, intentionally chase after seeing whether it's birth out of God's kingdom or instead birthed out of our cultural surroundings. Sometimes those are very different things. It's not an easy thing to do, I understand that, but if you'll commit to it, I really think it'll affect the way you live. I, th- I think it will. It's, it'll dramatically affect what you pursue and celebrate. In fact, I promise that it will. In a moment, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a time for you you set aside specifically for you to to respond to God's word instead of rushing out of here to the next thing we we built in this moment where where you can do business with God put action to that response of what he's stirring in your heart and so uh, I'll I'll be down front here if if you want to talk about something uh, if you're watching us online you can use the the contact form uh, available in the video description all that kind of stuff but listen maybe you need to respond in some other kind of way maybe you need to uh, uh, maybe it's that Uh, god's calling you to to be obedient in baptism or maybe he's calling you to to join this church family or to step out in service in some kind of maybe just maybe he's calling you to say yes to that that opportunity of missions that he's laid out in front of you maybe that's how you need to respond this morning be beautifully upside down in a place that looks a lot different from here but needs it just as desperately If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I'm glad you you chose to hang out with us today. You can respond to God's word by... By meeting Jesus, the Bible teaches that we are all, by default, separated from God because of our sin. Our sin, it deserves His wrath. It, it is just and right for Him to judge sinners. But the Bible also teaches that God loves us. He's rich in mercy and He loves us with a great love. And it ain't some flimsy cultural version of love that lives and lets live. No, no, it's a, it's a love that pursues at great cost to Himself. The eternal Son of God, Jesus, He came and He put on flesh and He dwelled among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living and He died on the cross as an innocent substitute to make payment for your sin. That's a better kind of love. I'll take that one. He was also raised again from the dead as a proof, as a vindication of His perfect and sufficient righteousness. And so now as the the conquering king, he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith. You can do that this morning. You can respond to him. You can call on him as Savior and Lord. You you don't need me, but I'd love to be helpful to you as you figure out what that response of faith looks like. I'll be down front here if you're watching us online. Get a hold of me whatever way is good for you, man. I'd love to help you walk through and, and, and begin responding to Jesus in faith. Saving faith. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. That's a time for uh, for us to respond to him together. I, uh, whoever you are, however God is calling you to respond. Let's respond together as the gathered church in his name. Let's do that now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for letter to Corinth. I have no doubt there are going to be some difficult moments as we walk through this letter together. There are going to be some things that I personally don't want to hear because I would prefer to avoid. Help me to trust that you are better and truer and sweeter than all the little things that well up inside me and say, Ah, but... I know that in my head, but my heart fights it. God, would you call me to submit to you humbly? Would you change my understanding of things? Give me eyes to see, yes, an upside-down kingdom, but a beautifully upside-down kingdom. God, help us to begin to think critically over this the course of this series. Help us to, to think critically about what what we've accepted as true that isn't true in your kingdom. What we've valued that isn't valued in your kingdom. What we've chased after that's not worthy of chasing after in your kingdom. It's going to be hard for me. But you've promised to give us yourself as we walk humbly with you. And so... That's all we gotta lean on. I'll take it. Two big things here. Help us reassess our bearing and make sure we're headed in the right direction. God, for those who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know? Would you draw people to yourself and into your kingdom this morning? (laughs) It, It won't make sense without you changing us to love you and value what you value. It's upside down. It is a thousand percent worth it. So save people right now. Call them to yourself. Help us respond well as a church family. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.